Welcome to the Next Money Podcast, our regular look at the fintech scene, particularly here in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, my name's Rob Finlay. I'm the CEO of Next Money here in Singapore. And each week, we ask a leading fintech practitioner about their journey in changing financial services for the better. You can find out more about us and the latest fintech news at nextmoney.org, where some of you will know our big conferences and meetups across the world. Contact us today to be a part of those conferences and meetups and these podcasts and much more. Well, welcome this week to the podcast, Ayesha Khanna from Addo AI. Welcome to uh, welcome to the podcast this week. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I think you know the, the progress you've been making here in Singapore and in Asia has been pretty fascinating. Um, and we are keen to talk at some point a bit about the impact that businesses like yours, the technology you have, will have mostly on the machine that is the bank as much as the customer experience. But first, I think you've got a pretty fascinating background and, and a lot of people here know what you've been up to. But can you tell us where it all started? What did you do before you got into this business? Well, it all started in New York. I started off as a programmer on Wall Street and then spent almost 10 years working on a lot of algorithmic trading systems, credit derivative systems, straight through processing of trades for a large number of the leading banks. After that, I really became interested in how information analytics and technology can transform the life of the urban resident. So I got into smart cities and started my PhD in smart cities. Soon afterwards, I moved to Singapore. And here, um, I got uh, a lot into fintech because that was just coming up. So I started a popular meetup. I also consulted some companies. But then after that, I found my co-founder in Pakistan, and he has a PhD in machine learning. And both of us decided that what interested us the most was to combine analytics and information technology and use what is now called machine learning and artificial intelligence to really push innovation forward in companies. That's great. I'd be interested to know what about Singapore in particular fascinated you. I'm sure there's lots of reasons why Singapore is a smart nation and there's obviously a very deliberate program in Singapore about developing its smart nation capabilities. But was that something you, was Singapore a place or was, was Asia in general a place that you saw from New York that was, that had an exciting future in front of it? I grew up in Pakistan. So um, when I went to the US, I loved it over there, but I really felt the pull of Asia. And my husband, whose family's Indian, also wanted to return to Asia as well. We both chose Singapore because it's the perfect hub from where to operate in ASEAN and also South Asia. And yes, there is so much excitement because the market is so big and the emerging middle class is full of optimism. They are upskilling every day and it provides a great platform to roll out new customers and products and services. But just on, just to keep going on this, I mean, is, is New York not one of those places as well where it's got pretty exciting technology that and amazing talent that would be doing the same things? Or did you find that there's good and bad on both sides? Well, New York is very exciting. It's very cutting edge. Some of the best technologies in fintech startups and AI startups that we see are coming out of New York. Mm. And I, even though I'm based in Asia, I'm still very connected to New York, to Silicon Valley, to Berlin, where my PhD is, to London. So this old notion of being limited to where you are physically is just not applicable to people like us anymore. We travel so much. We're connected to everyone. I don't miss New York because I don't really feel I ever left it. But what Asia offers is a whole new class of customers. 
and they have their own needs that are different from the ones that I experienced in the U.S. That's very exciting for me. For instance, we're looking at farmers in Pakistan, and that is not something that I had looked at for many years in the U.S. Is do you think the the large corporations in Asia? Are they ready for this technology wave that's coming through on all fronts, not just AI, but obviously in in all parts of fintech and technology more generally? When you think of particular pockets, could be Pakistan, India, Singapore, Southeast Asia, obviously North Asia, do you think that these large companies are really ready for what's about to come? Some of them are. I think we are really seeing the Chinese companies making a real push for it. But a lot of family-run businesses are not. Mm. And that's because their systems are old. They've never really had to use technology to compete. They've kind of had market capture without really competing for it because they had control of assets or land or factories. And what we're seeing now with digitization is that Everybody has a democratic access if they have the right technology and they can access people's mobile phone to provide them services. So we're entering a really interesting phase where all companies will have to acknowledge and fight for customers with the best services. I think that's right. I think, I think it's not just large corporates, but it's also mom and pop shops and everything in between, right? I, I, I do wonder what role corporates and banks have to play in help educating those people in those markets who will benefit from this great technology. Uh, do you think there's a role they should play? And I've, I know you've involved in a lot of NGO work as well. And, and are you seeing that there's good corporate citizenship being displayed out there? Or is it still early for that as well? It's relatively early, I think. Um, mainly because the right way to educate the middle class or the so-called the poorer populations in the developing world is not to be patronizing, but to truly understand what their concerns are, what their pain points are. To give you an example, um, when I was a sophomore, I actually worked in a microfinance bank Mm. in Pakistan. And I remember going to the villages with my Harvard sophomore attitude and really being shocked and humbled by how much these women understood the interest rates that were being charged. They had a plan for what they wanted to do. And they knew a lot more and understood their own condition much better than I did. And that has remained with me ever since. What I find problematic with the corporate education system sometimes is that they actually don't take the time to really tailor it to what is needed in that particular village or in that particular city. I think the more we start doing that and respecting people, um, we will see education that really benefits them, whether it's finance or whether it's robotics or anything else. It's really good. I think that's the foundation of essentially human-centered design, right, is to understand and empathize and let the user or the customer really guide you in your decision-making. Let's flip now to your business today, which is Addo AI. Can you give us a little summary of what the business does and and what it's been doing lately? Right. So Addo means to add in Latin, and Addo AI means add artificial intelligence. So what we do is we go to companies that are capturing a lot of data but don't often know how to use it, and we use that to help them optimize their operations and, frankly, to radically innovate and introduce new products and services. 
So one of the companies that we're working with is a very large transportation company in Singapore to launch an entirely new type of mobility platform, which is known as Mobility as a Service, where you can provide personalized mobility options to people. And by just using one app, they can actually book car sharing or bike sharing. They can decide how much they want to walk. And so using what is called the API economy, we integrate a number of mobility options in one. And what's interesting here is you use machine learning in both the consumer side by giving them personalized preferences so that they are able to ride a journey, whether their preference is to be healthy and walk more, or their preference is a certain time or a certain cost that it takes to get from origin to destination, and also on the supply side so that you can dynamically move around mobility infrastructure like e-scooters depending on where demand and congestion will be higher. So the city becomes much more responsive and personalized and real time. That is really only possible with, I think, big data analytics and machine learning. And is it a business that is just Asia-focused You in Singapore at the moment only or is it, is it elsewhere? We are. We have offices in Singapore, Dubai, and Lahore, but uh, our clients are in Singapore, also in Japan, and we are now expanding to Europe in the fall as well. So we're pretty much open to not only consulting services, but what's really exciting now is that we have an incubator as well. And our first product is being incubated, um, and the IMDA Pixel Labs has given us a spot for a couple of months at the National Design Center. And our first product is a micro-insurance product for farmers. Fantastic. So that's really interesting. So what, what it sounds like is you're in this really interesting, which I think is where all the growth is, this really interesting blurred and intersecting space between fintech and cities and, and data practices. I, I find this way that we pre-categorize our own industries now is, is being sort of broken down quite a bit. Are you finding that there's no real, there's nowhere that data analytics and, and analysis and the ideas can't go anymore? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I think that data and analytics is needed everywhere. I think industries are merging. And we are seeing bold, we're seeing very bold leadership. We're seeing Amazon getting into rockets. We're seeing uh, you know, Tesla get into electrical utility. We are seeing Google get into cities. And bold leaders do not respect traditional industrial boundaries because with the power of supercomputing and machine learning, you can really uh, power a lot of the new products that are span several different industries. And we're really seeing that in China where they are less hesitant than others to go into mobile payments, e-commerce, um, bike sharing, anything that you can think of. Are there industries, though, that will be much more impacted by this kind of technology, which it will be all pervasive, I agree with you, it will really be impactful across the board, but there must be things like insurance, for example, and, and logistics and transport, where there's this dramatic need for efficiency where in the past it's been a fairly rudimentary industry of sorts. It's been a little bit handmade and, and the processes have been a bit clunky. Mm. This technology must be ready to come through and really hit certain industries more than others. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, those industries that have been collecting a lot of data or are capable of collecting a lot of data, like logistics, for mm. instance, um, and that have been using a lot of routine processes that have been manned by human beings, are prime candidates for the kind of automation and optimization of operations that artificial intelligence brings to the fore. Let's just move now. Let's pretend we're inside a big, ugly corporate <laughs> machine like a bank or... <laughs> 
some technology firm, for example, which are probably a bit more advanced. But let's take a bank because that's familiar for us. And let's let's think of the places where we can then uh, start to see the impact of this kind of technology. Let's think about how, not just how we capture data, but how we store it and what we do with it. There's some potentially obvious ones, but what are the really amazing things you've seen that either AI or others have done with taking unstructured and structured data and really getting powerful outcomes? Well, let me take an example from insurance, if that's okay, uh, in financial services. If you think of driver's insurance and you think about the life cycle of the driver, you can see the elderly drivers are still owning cars, but they're making more mistakes, for instance, when they're driving just because of age. The younger people, the millennials, are not interested in owning cars at all. So in both cases, the insurance company is essentially beginning to lose driver's insurance money that they get every year. Now, let's take the elderly population. You want the elderly person to continue to pay their driver's insurance, yet you don't want to pay for their accidents. So one way that a number of companies are doing, and we're also experimenting with, is by using facial recognition and telematics, Internet of Things data, to understand and warn the driver if they're exhibiting risky behavior. So if they look stressed or their heartbeat goes suddenly up or it looks like they're falling asleep. And this is also corroborated by the telematics data that shows how they're driving. Are they braking too hard, for instance? Mm. Then potentially down the road, you could integrate this with their preconditions. And of course, you always have the other data, such as traffic conditions, weather conditions. And all of this allows you to intervene before an accident happens. When that happens, you recommend to the driver to move to the side, and the driver doesn't have the uh, the accident. The insurance company is happy. The driver is happy. And in the long run, you can see that data and give them personalized training. Mm. So you can say, we've noticed at night when it's raining, you tend to feel a little groggy. So perhaps it's not a good time for you to drive today. Maybe have a cab pick you up. This is where a chatbot or somebody else can help them. So you can just build upon data to make them be safer drivers. And yet the insurance company continues to have a stream of revenue at the same time. This is a classic example of personalized learning from the uh, from the AI that is helping to prevent accidents, but also personally giving advice to the driver. It must, I, I don't know, I can think of so many spin-off stories here. One would be less accidents equals less claims the insurance company has to make. Therefore, the more money they make, but the more margin there is for competitive pressure on pricing to come down, right. which must be difficult. The second one is people who fix cars and repair cars and, and panel repairs and so on have going to have a bit less business in the future. Yes. <laughs> but that also means that the hospitals have a bit less business, which is probably a good thing because we hopefully won't see the types of car accident um, victims that, that we've seen in the past. I read the other day another one, which was uh, now revenue from speeding tickets and uh, poor driving decisions will also decline and in some parts of the world, that, that, that revenue can be critical for a local government to keep their business going, right? It, for some counties in the States, I've heard that revenue from speeding fines is still one of the most critical ways of getting money in. So all these amazing benefits can sometimes have these really fascinating knock-on effects to other sectors and other industries, which is, which is why data can be so powerful because of the reverberating ripples. 
I think that's a really good point that you raised. And if a state government or city is is relying on speeding tickets and parking tickets, mm. then it's about time they woke up and did something else. So yeah. <laughs> nine out of 10 times when you improve the human condition and somebody loses out, well, frankly, they deserve to lose out because they are making money on the uh, misfortune of human beings. So I think that you're right. But... Um, the question is, which is the bigger question, is how do we take care of the people who are employed by such governments, agencies, and as a result of removing inefficiencies, they lose their jobs. A lot of time um, I spend is talking to people and telling them to upskill themselves, to understand that with automation, their careers will change, their jobs will change, and they really need to be prepared for it, not only for themselves, but also for their children. When you talk to businesses about what Addo AI does, you know, are they looking to you to give recommendations on where this technology is best applied or are they really coming to you with a particular problem that is is something that you can solve for them? They always come with a problem and the problem is terribly defined. <laughs> because, yeah, right. Overly defined. Yeah, I mean, in the sense that it's vague. Mm. And, and, you know, being an advisor, it's our job to help them define it. So we often start with a workshop, could be a couple of days, mm. because we don't want anybody to jump into technology or data analytics or machine learning. So uh, problem refinement is important. And then one can stagger out kind of in phases. What do they really need? What are the pain points for the priorities? It seems very logical and straightforward, but a lot of companies don't do that. They come to you with something like, we want to be innovative, or um, you know, we want to cut costs, and tell me how we can do it with big data. That's not really you know, um, a very sophisticated way of asking a question and answering it. So mm. we, we keep our focus on the problem. I mean, I tend to call my team like AI doctors. Right. So we, we don't want to stick around, we're not needed, but we are really there to solve problems, to heal kind of the inefficiencies and to create a healthier organization that can grow. I'm, I'm really worried that some, some people will come to you with a problem that they think it's an old school problem but and a, and a, new, a new solution that creates the same outcome just in a bit better way. I worry that that's what a lot of people sometimes think of these technologies, replacing an old way of doing the same thing, basically. But the opportunity here, as you say, is to say, well, what's the problem? Doesn't matter what the, the end goal is, we will find the most appropriate solution for that, as opposed to re-engineering an existing process that's still the same. Right. So I'm hoping that they have that perspective. They do, and I think the, the key is we... Um, because we are a partnership between industry and academia, because my co-founder is mm. actually a professor and runs uh, Pakistan's uh, leading data science lab, and our head of artificial intelligence is also a professor. So because we are also academics, I mean, I'm almost done with my PhD, we have a great love for the subject. Mm. We don't approach it in a mechanical manner. We think it's the art and science of inquiry, and we love to tell our clients about it because it is a black box, but it doesn't have to be. And it may seem like rocket science, but it doesn't have to be. Right. And when you understand it, then you know what it can do. And you don't have to do it right now, but at least you should know. And so you don't know what you don't know when, when you haven't been exposed to it. Mm. And so um, we're big believers in almost forcing our clients to learn because A, they enjoy it. B, they might not invest that much right now, but down the road, they can see it when the opportunity is there. I think that's really important. The education element is very important. One is never too young or too old to learn. Oh, I totally agree. There's, a, there's an analogy I'm thinking of. Tell me if I'm wrong, which is when people think of pilots in planes, they think of autopilot. They think the pilot gets in, takes off, 
presses the autopilot switch, reads a magazine for eight hours and has coffees and then lands the plane manually again, where I've heard pilots constantly saying, look, an autopilot is there to assist the pilot in their job. The autopilot function is there to contribute content and data and decision-making content to help the pilot understand and decide what to do through the whole flight. Are we looking at this technology as an autopilot switch that we walk away from, or is it really there to assist still human-made decisions in a really deep way, or is it something else? What, what role does it play next to either less humans or the same number playing different roles? What it allows you to do is to automate the parts that are routine. Um, so AI is very good at automating things that humans do, which mm. is unfortunate because then it almost competes with humans naturally. It, so, um, and the reason is because of the learning algorithms, it just copies human beings and can do it faster. Mm. And then it provides human beings, it should free up their time to do something more, more interesting, more creative, and really get their creative juices going. I don't like to think of it as a tool. I always say AI is a partner. And the reason is if you teach an intelligent, and, and right now we're at the very beginning of so-called artificial intelligence, I think a lot more will, will happen over time, is that you can elicit um, a back and forth with the AI, which is much more productive than if you think that you are the only one commanding it. And so um, I think it, it is a bit different from the autopilot because the autopilot is just automation and, and the, the pilot saves the plane if anything goes wrong. But this is really about building a better plane. Mm which is done in partnership. So if you could if you could just automate some parts of it and the pilot could maybe do something else with that time, uh, I think that's really what we're looking for here. Okay, so last few questions. So when we think of a, a large organisation that still has a lot of people that do those tasks that potentially can be done by, by automation or, other, or, or even just even machine learning and deep learning, what will these companies become? So at the moment they're quite process-driven, they're quite driven around compliance and regulation, not just literally, but also as a mindset and a way of working. But when we potentially release those people from those roles where they're being extremely bound by a set process and certain standards of quality assurance to hit that a machine could probably do on its own, will we see a, will we see a bank become somewhat more of hopefully a, a creative company? Will it become much more about a marketing business? What will the company of the future do when it's able to uh, offload some of those those sort of rudimentary tasks to technology. What do you think the the population of a bank will be in 10, 20 years' time when it potentially has been able to remove some of those those sort of quite functional um, roles? It'll be much smaller in size, the population. It'll look much more like a tech company. Mm. And um, it'll be much more collaborative because it'll plug and play with a lot of other partners in the industry. Mm. I think what is important is... And I was just talking to the Straits Times. Uh, I was being interviewed about teachers and are they equipped to teach our children the coding and computational skills they need. And I said, you know, we shouldn't complain. How we treat our teachers when we need to retrain them, how we treat our bank employees when we need to treat, uh, retrain them, how we treat our citizens, it's very important. They must be treated gently with respect, they must be trained. They mu they must be a process of handing them over uh, to other industries and introducing them to other industries. It's going to be painful, mm. but um, true leadership, both at the national level and at the corporate level, comes not only make from making the bold decision to decide to get, for instance, rid of a unit 
and replace it with machine learning, but also to how do you handle those employees and how do you make sure that they're ready for the next phase. That is the ethics of using technology more and more in economy and giving people the confidence so that they can think they're taken care of so that they can loosen up and think about the next thing that they want to do. Has the ethics conversation been deep enough yet? I'm not sure it has. I think a lot of the technology is pretty exciting, but it's been exciting for those that are probably building it. The rest of us are probably scratching our head a little bit about what it means and what it means for my kids and what they're going to be doing and how they'll live their lives. I mean, the ethics conversation still seems a bit early. Are you, are you trying to inform policymakers that this is something they need to confront now or is it really you want them to wait and see what happens? No, we should definitely do it now. First of all, things like moral dilemmas should be always taught along with computational thinking in schools. Mm. At the same time, there is a wonderful movement in the West about beneficial AI, about open AI, and we should mirror that in the East as well. And I'm actually talking to some people about Singapore being a convener of the top AI specialists in the region, really having those conversations about who has the supercomputers, what do they want to do, when should we slow it down or speed it up. They're, um, they, it's very important for us to have these conversations now because of the speed of change, but also for the transparency that is needed globally on who controls these algorithms. Last question. Let's project, project forward. Obviously, Asia is seen as a, a, a fantastic um, vision of the future for a lot of things. Can it be a fantastic center for AI technology? Can it be, can the markets that you can think of that are around us here, say take the 10, 20 markets around us, be really those countries that adopt AI technology in really exciting ways? Have you got three or four, four markets that you like that you're excited about here? And what do you think the future holds for them? First of all, absolutely. I think China has shown us that when you have a large population, you learn big data and AI very quickly. And they have made it part of their national strategy. So they have invested a lot in Baidu and other companies in machine learning and AI specialists. And it's not only AI, but it's also supercomputing professionals because you need a lot of server and computing power. Um, I think that it's an opportunity for countries like Indonesia, mm. like Pakistan and India, like Vietnam to leapfrog. So every time there's a disruption, there's an opportunity for others to say, okay, I'm not going to learn this. I'm just going to leapfrog. Mm. I know so many young people from second tier to third tier cities across the Philippines and others mm. who are taking Udacity courses, Coursera courses. I'm so proud of them. They have all this energy and drive and hunger. And when they learn it, they naturally go into companies and they start implementing those things. They're absolutely global citizens and they are going to bring AI through the mobile phone especially, provide very personalized services and products to people and completely disrupt business as we know it. That's really true. I think it's really exciting that this wave of young people, especially in countries like Philippines and others that have this incredibly huge uh, young population, right. Vietnam the same, where a third or half the country is under the age of 30. Um, it's a really exciting future. Ayesha Khanna from Addo AI, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so Wish much. Wish you all the best with your new business. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for today's show. We really want to thank you all for listening. Uh, be sure to check the latest Next Money news and conferences at nextmoney.org. We'd love to have uh, your interest in being on the show. We want you to be a guest, a sponsor, a producer. Uh, we'd love your con contribution. And we'll speak to you next time on the Next Money podcast. Next Money podcast.